0: time ago an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima Minister Gorbachev tear down this the American people I think is good people they are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies.
1: World War episode 19. How are you, Raimondo? Doing good. How are you? Um, Excellent. Let's get into this. We're in a rush today. No time to fuck around. No. But I do want to read this story. I saw this on Reddit, and I had read about it before, but I wanted to touch on Mm -hmm. it because it just reminded me what a great story it is. In 1938, uh, Stalin got a letter from his son's teacher, basically Mm -hmm. complaining that that his son, Vasily, was a little cunt. And <laughs> Stalin wrote... This is factual. This is this is real shit. He wrote this letter right. back. To teach a comrade Martishin. I have received your letter about escapades of Vasily Stalin. Thank you for the letter. Replying with a great delay because of being overloaded with work. My apologies. Vasily is a spoiled young man of average abilities. Little wild man, not always honest, likes to blackmail weak teachers, not rarely an insolent fellow, with weak, or more accurately, unorganized willpower. He was spoiled by various godfathers and god mummies, who continually emphasize that he is Stalin's son. I am glad that in your person there is at least one self-respecting teacher Who treats Vasily as everyone else and demands that the insolent boy follows the school's policy. Vasily Mm. is spoiled by principals like the one you mentioned, washcloth people, who have no place at school. And if insolent Vasily hasn't destroyed himself yet, it is because our country still has teachers who don't give slack to the little young swell. My advice... Demand stricter from Vasily and don't be afraid of fake blackmail threats of suicide from the capricious child. You will have my support. Unfortunately, I don't have the opportunity to fuss with Vasily myself, but promise to grab him by the collar from time to time. Cheers.
0: (laughs) I just want to go on the record and say, I think my personal god that Stalin was not my daddy. Uh, Well, but he makes a good point. Yeah. Um
1: <laughs> So, uh, what do you think happened to the teacher?
0: I don't know what happened.
1: <laughs> well, what would you think would happen if uh, he uh, uh, wrote a Didn't letter like, like that to Stalin <laughs> about his son? Mm. Um, yeah, well, the, 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 he was uh, fired during a purge of the right. school. And some of the histories have said that it was Stalin's fault that Stalin basically got the letter, wrote that back, and then um, had him attacked. But um, oh, apparently, not true. According to the teacher's own son, he he was fired, um, but there, but it was because the it got back to the principal that he had criticised the principal to Stalin. And uh, Stalin had him reappointed, and uh, yeah, he was not—he was not touched. So there you go. Yeah. Well,
0: I mean, ha- how about Stalin yeah. saying,
1: "Yeah, pull my son into line." Stalin did have a son who tried to commit suicide and failed, and Stalin said, "You couldn't even do that right." So, uh, <laughs> but well, that was a—that was a different oh son, God. I think.
0: Yeah, well, if you th- if you think about. If Stalin has a son who's a little shitty, whatever, snot-knows-brat, and, and you think about Stalin's life and I mean, how seriously he took self-improvement. He was always reading books. He was ruthless and all that good stuff. But he was always trying to be better because he did want to rule. He did want to have power and control. And you he know he's going to compare himself to his child. And so if someone isn't cutting the mustard, um, Stalin could easily turn on his own children just like he did everyone else. So he had a high high bar for everybody to meet and not too many people – met that uh, expectation of his.
1: Apparently, um, Stalin's adopted son, Artyom Sergiv, recalls a fight between Stalin and Vasily. Stalin found Mm -hmm. out that Vasily had used his famous last name to escape punishment for one of his drunken debauches. Stalin Mm -hmm. screamed at him, and Vasily retorted, But I am a Stalin, too! No, you're not, said Stalin. You're not Stalin, and I'm not Stalin! Stalin is Soviet power. Stalin is what is in the newspapers and the portraits. Not you, not even me. So there you Point. go. Stalin was a mythological Israel character. Was. He was a character right. that uh, Dugasvili played. Anyway, yeah. I like those stories. Okay, let's get nice. into this, man, because we've got a lot to do. Today, yeah. I want to talk about Bretton Woods. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to let you do all the talking, so off you go.
0: Okay, good. So before that, we finally, Stalin finally, oh my God, finally gets his wish. He's only been promised this for, what, two or three years. Uh, They have uh, the Allies launch D-Day June 6th, um, uh, roughly 160,000 men. Of which seventy-three thousand of them were American soldiers. They, you know, they go on to to France. uh, Fifty miles of beach. There's five thousand ships, thirteen thousand airplanes. Again, mostly American. And there's and by the time the day's over, with roughly nine thousand Allied soldiers are killed or wounded. So this is obviously a very large American-led. shit attack and um and it's all under the leadership of dwight eisenhower again american because the uh, the british are learning that america is going to be controlling this so they have the success they're able to start this uh the second front that stalin has been screaming for for years and people um on uh, historians all over the or on both sides are all over the place about how much did we'll the see. americans lie to the soviets hold on what
1: what? No, sorry, I didn't say what? anything. Keep going. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: No, so so the so everybody, the historians are all over the place. How much did the Americans lie to the Soviets? Did they just literally drag them on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to a second front. Did they lie just to keep him Stalin from making an agreement with Hitler? I mean, who knows? But the point is, they finally landed. They are on the they are on the continent, and now it's because it's becoming an American show. Obviously, this war is about to end sometime soon, so they have to start thinking about the world, about Europe after this horrific war and who's going to be what and who's going to be in charge and what are the policies going to be. And America is really going to throw their weight at this point and and set themselves up to be the masters as much as they can after the war.
1: So last time we talked about the first meeting of the Big Three, the Tehran conference held in Iran in the Soviet embassy there. Uh, And we also talked about how because of the D-Day landing and that was mostly uh, uh, supplied in terms of material and men by the US and it was under the control of Eisenhower. The, and, mm-hmm. and during the conference in Tehran, FDR really decides to um, step it up. He Rather than just playing second fiddle to Churchill's wishes now, FDR's like, actually, I'm running the show, so sit down yeah. and shut the fuck up, Winnie. Um, but also around about this time... The Bretton Woods Conference happens
0: mm-hmm. and a month after the invasion, right?
1: Yeah, this is massively important to understand about the course of the Cold War and just the world in general uh, after World War yeah. II.
0: Yeah, I think a lot. Just real quick, a lot of people might not find this sexy, but it is. But it still, to this day, can you know has a large influence over the world. So this is something again where our main thesis in some ways all of this is history of everything it's about money it's about economics and who has the power and america is about to demonstrate to the british and to everyone else exactly how powerful they are now
1: yeah a lot of people say that about me that they don't find me very sexy but, <laughs> but important <laughs> but it's
0: important well, they haven't seen your webcam like i have the feed the, the web secret feed? Yeah. Yeah, the
1: feed yeah exactly my 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 the you haven't seen me WikiLeaksing all over my Assange.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, it's, it's an in-joke. You've got to listen to our other shows to get that. Uh. Um, so, economically, it wasn't just militarily where the U.S. was now playing right. a much larger role. Economically, they reigned supreme. Um, militarily, you could say they, particularly in terms of armies, they were still second to the Russians, the Soviets. Right um uh, but in economically yeah by by far and just to put this in some put some numbers around this at the time there were uh, an estimated 22 billion dollars in gold reserves on the planet how much mm-hmm. of that do you think the US controlled out of 28 billion
0: yeah yeah i th- i think you you might have misspoke there, yeah but what You've originally said 22, and then you said 28. Oh, no, I didn't. Did I? Yeah. Fuck. It, it, that's what I heard. That's, that's okay. So we can keep going, admit admit that we're human, or we can stop and say it again, and you can edit this out. I'm <laughs> going to let you decide. Uh, whatever. So out of $28
1: billion <laughs> in gold reserves on the planet, the U.S. Yeah. controlled $22
0: billion. I cannot comprehend that. I mean, because obviously we got a lot of gold from Britain before the Lindley started, so they had to pay for a lot of things. But yeah, America is the economic dominant power, and we are not being attacked. We are not being bombed. It's per- looking pretty good for America right about now.
1: Yeah, so before Americans start high-fiving each other over how freaking awesome <laughs> America is, again, let me point it out. Most of Too why- late.
0: <laughs> High-five.
1: World War I and World War II destroyed most of Europe and Russia, and the Russians had the Civil War and all that kind of stuff, but had mm-hmm. very limited effect on America. Why right. oceans? Uh, that's basically oceans. So Around America's oceans. success it was a luck of geography, really, at this point in time. Mm-hmm. It had also something to do with slaves. Slaves are great if you're trying to build a, bit, yeah. a big industry. American it industry helps. too had something to do with it. I'm not. T- I'm not saying that had nothing to do with it, but mm-hmm. it, it, it helps if you haven't had the shit fucking bombed out of you over right. twice over the you last have to re- re- rebuild years.
0: it two or three times exactly exactly. And look,
1: stealing Mexico, uh, that was pretty good. It doesn't hurt. Yeah, Thank you. yeah. And the Philippines yep.
0: and uh, Puerto Rico and Hawaii right. and all the and other. And then you got the. Um... Uh, The the Monroe Doctrine Where we say Everybody say the fuck out This is our domain That's not
1: bad too But the, the main reason The US was Economically dominant At this time Was because it hadn't Had the shit Kicked out of it Twice right. in rapid succession as a result of World War I and World War II. Or have to, mm-hmm. to, to defend itself by spending massive amounts of money and losing uh, its men. I mean, England didn't get the ship bombed out of it in World War I, but it lost a lot of its adult male population right. in the trenches of World War I, Absolutely. which is going to have a big effect on your economy for a generation or two mm-hmm. uh, or more. So, I mean, not only are those men not working during those years, they don't get to come back and work and they don't get to come back and have kids that can grow up and work and all of that kind of stuff. So it has ripple right. effects that last for generations. Um, so a month after the invasion, uh, the D-Day invasion, Roosevelt's administration organizes this conference on post-war economic planning in a place called Bretton Woods in New Hampshire where they basically set up institutions to open up free trade around the world and to promote industrial development uh, across Europe after the war. Oh,
0: that sounds nice.
1: The 44 allied nations send 730 delegates to this conference, which lasts for uh, several weeks and uh it is a major turning point in the global economy. Yeah.
0: Yeah there were as far as i could tell there were two major accomplishments but again it's all going to skew favorably uh, towards the americans and and you've made this point uh several times this is the death knell of the british trading system where they had their empire all over the world and everybody traded within it and they kept everybody else out so you've got the uh, international monetary fund um and the uh, International Bank of Reconstruction and Development. So again these are things that America is pretty much going to uh, fund but again because they are putting up the money they're going to get to say what is spent and who the who is going to benefit from what you know the purchases that these people are going to make. This is going to certainly help America and weaken Britain's economy so much more than uh, along with the war that is about to wrap up. Yeah, that's right. But the, the, the
1: thing to understand here is the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Now, I've tried to get my head around this a few times over the last 10 years or so, and, and right. I've never really had the opportunity to dedicate the amount of time that I need to it uh, until I prepared for this episode. So I'm not going to say I'm, I'm the world's greatest expert on this, uh, but I'm going to give it a crack based on my understanding about the importance of of the gold standard and what happened to it during World War One and the Great Depression.
0: Right. Now,
1: to understand this, you really understand need to understand a little bit about the history of money. And we, I'm going to run through this as quickly as I can because we've got to get in and okay. out of this episode. So, for most of history, money was made of coins. Coins were made of various precious metals or semi-precious metals or a combination of semi-precious metals and more base metals. But people thought that the coin had inherent value. It had the value of the metal that was used to make it, as opposed to coins today, which are made out of just shit. But we we, we have a theoretical value of that. But throughout most of history... The gold coin was worth the value of the gold that was in the coin, or silver, mm-hmm. or whatever it was. That makes sense to me. All now, right. wh- why is gold so important? People, Why do people like gold? I mean, not just because it's pretty. Uh, it's also because it's relatively rare. It's relatively hard to fake gold. It's, right. It lasts forever. It's pretty malleable. You can turn it Mm -hmm. into all sorts of things. We just did an Alexander show talking about how they made his coffin and the catafalque and everything out of gold. Even the the spokes of the wheels are made out of gold. You can turn it into anything. It's easy to store. It doesn't need to be kept at a certain temperature. You can just make make Mm -hmm. it into gold bricks and throw it in a, you know, what do you call those things? (laughs) Safe vault. Yeah, vault. That was the word I'm looking for. Uh And it's heavy Which makes it relatively hard to steal. As I said in our uh, Alexander show, a brick of gold, a gold bar that you see in a heist movie, weighs about a kilo. So, trying to grab ten of those, it's pretty hard. (laughs) It'll be obvious. But but carrying around a bag of gold coins with you everywhere is a pain in the ass. So, they invented paper money. (laughs) Uh, When do you think paper money was first invented, Ooh,
0: Ooh. Um... I have no idea. I mean, did did checks or not checks, but something like checks come before paper money? I honestly don't know. Well, take it. You take it. To, like, you could take, sign a waiver. Take it. Yeah, Fuck, take it. I guess. don't know. Um I'm going to I have no Where idea and 1600. when? 1600. 1600. Fuck. Italy. I have no idea. No, no. Well, not it's bad. The Middle East. Okay. S- yes. China
1: in the 7th century. China they invented okay. the first paper money
0: the idea well, was they've sh- been around for 3000 years so yeah. good for them
1: yeah the idea was you could carry around paper and then convert it to gold mm-hmm. or silver or copper or whatever you wanted at various points nice. now uh, in the 13th century marco polo goes to china comes back by the way great story we should do marco polo someday man like that that would be okay. a good series to do marco cool. polo comes back to Europe and brings the idea of paper money back, and the Italians start creating promissory notes. That was the first kind of paper money. So it was easier to transport large sums of money over long distances if it was just written on a piece of paper and you didn't need to take (laughs) uh, bags and bags of actual money. It was also uh, made it a lot harder to get robbed because if somebody... Did rob you of your promissory note? It became invalid. Right. You just contacted the issuer of the note, mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a money lender, and say, "Hey, my note got robbed," and they go, "Well, okay, okay. no one can redeem it then." Uh, assuming you're still alive, to tell them that. But anyway, you, you, you had right. to prove your identity to, to redeem the note.
0: Right. So it there was a,
1: toilet paper. There was a lot. Yeah. yeah, there was a lot of benefits to paper money. You know, for the next hundred years or so, the idea catches on. People would deposit their gold in a bank. The bank would give them back a piece of paper, and the piece of paper Mm -hmm. said you could get your gold back whenever you wanted just by presenting that piece of paper. Nice. Then the banks eventually developed this brilliant idea of issuing paper notes that other people could redeem for gold or silver. So not just you could get your gold back, but you could then pass Mm -hmm. that piece of paper on to somebody else, Right The bearer They of, could take it to the bank The bearer of the note Yes Could come and mm-hmm. get that Redeemed for actual cash
0: and So then now you, I can rob you
1: Well no It you, you had to be <laughs> signed on the back And all that kind of oh, stuff okay. we do a checks i you used to do a check. Okay
0: Alright Then eventually the bank said
1: You know what We can issue more notes than we actually have in gold reserves because it's highly no. unlikely that everyone's gonna want their gold back at the same time. By the way, I'm just using gold here as a stand-in for silver yeah. and everything else, right? I'm just gonna say gold. Right. So by the late seventeenth century, people decided, you know, money, it's really we don't need gold. It's it's really just an imaginary concept. Whether or not the paper is backed by actual gold and silver doesn't really matter. It's just let's let's just all assume that it's backed by metal and that the paper itself has intrinsic value.
0: And if you all honor it, then then it's it's pretty much everything you need. If everybody honors it, then it is cash. Yeah. Exactly. Excuse me. It is money.
1: Yeah. But at the heart of it, there was this idea that it really was backed by something tangible. Behind mm-hmm. the scenes, now in in uh, the late 17th century, the Bank of England is the first bank to start printing fixed currency notes in 1694 to fund a war with France.
0: Yeah, they would do
1: that because the British had just been defeated soundly by France. Why? Because the French had the world's greatest navy, Ta-da! and the British went. You know what we need. We need a we fucking, need of those. We need a navy. But <laughs> we need one of those. They didn't have any money. Um, they by the way, this, uh, the, these notes that the Bank of England started issuing were pegged to a pound of sterling silver, which is why British currency is called a pound sterling. It was a mm. pound of sterling silver. But French. note that it wasn't the government that was printing the money. It was the banks... No. Um, early on, banks issued their own money, not governments. The Bank of England was a limited liability corporation. And the story behind this is actually interesting. As I said, England had been defeated by France, who was the world's greatest naval power at the time. The English government, as a result, not only didn't have enough money to fund a new war, its credit weighting was so low it couldn't even borrow <laughs> the funds... To start a war, that's bad. Everyone's going. Eh, I don't know, man. We're not. Um, we're not going to uh, lend you any money. The uh, French have just kicked your ass. They're
0: going to so, do it again. Yeah.
1: So the way this worked was the Bank of England was created with with investors. It was a privately owned corporation, as I said. And people, investors, gave their bullion to the bank, their silver, mm-hmm. their gold. The bank mm-hmm. then, in turn, gave it to the government to spend on building up a navy. The government had to pay interest on the loans, and the government in return gave the bank complete possession of what was in the government's treasury at the time. Now, the bank gave the investors paper notes which said they could redeem their investment for cash whenever they wanted, and mm-hmm. and claim interest as well for the, the investment, but they could also re-loan out their bits of paper which was backed by government security. So these were the first government bonds. You could reloan out your paper to somebody else and charge interest on it. Now, it was so successful that the kingdom of the new kingdom of Great Britain, which was forged at the time, used the mm-hmm. funds to build a massive navy and change the course of history for centuries. Right. And it was also a great investment for the investors in the Bank of England because They were able to uh, benefit from the wealth that the Kingdom of Great Britain was able to create through the creation Mm -hmm. of the Navy, building the British Empire, etc. Right. So uh, by the mid-19th century, the Bank of England had the exclusive right to issue banknotes, but any new oats they issued had to be backed 100% with gold reserves Or up to Mm -hmm. 14 million pounds In government debt And that was pretty much the same Around the rest of the world So here we are, mid-19th century Banks are issuing banknotes Backed by gold reserves 100% backed by gold reserves Because people want to know Okay, if we want to claim our banknotes For actual something that's useful In time of crisis Or something like that We want to be able to convert it to gold You have to have the gold there And a central bank in each country had the right to issue banknotes backed by gold reserves. Uh, over time, mm-hmm. this idea of a central bank. So you didn't have 20 different banks issuing their own notes. You had one bank that issued notes and they were used uh, by other banks. Right. Um, now, this happens around the world, as I said. These. Currencies are pegged to gold around the world as well. So you knew how much gold you would get for one US dollar or one British pound. It was Mm -hmm. pegged to an exchange rate based on gold. And it worked pretty well. This enabled international trade. You could buy something from one country or sell it to a country, and you kind of knew how much money you would get for that because the notes of that country that people would be paying you with, you could convert into gold and then convert into the currency of your country. Right. But then, during World War One and the Great Depression, countries mm-hmm. were running out of money and gold. So, th- so they said, fuck it, and they just started printing money <laughs> that wasn't backed by gold love it this is known as fiat currency f-i-a-t as in the car
0: i think the word theft um (laughs) you tried to spell but anyway please yeah so they just started printing because they needed it go ahead
1: yes they needed money so they just started printing money now the problem with this is when lots of newly printed money enters an economy uh the money that's out there becomes worthless it's it's Mm -hmm. Like any commodity, right? The more of it there is, the less it is worth. And when money loses its value, people want more of it for their products. So a litre of milk that used to call a dollar now costs $2 or $3 or $5. It leads to inflation. And that's what happened around the world between 1914 and 1939. Massive Mm. inflation. It also caused massive headaches for balance of payments between countries. So let's say, again, you're in the US and you wanted to sell some steel to someone in the UK and they're going to pay you in British pounds. And when you try and convert that British pound to gold, you find out it isn't worth what it should be. So it completely right. fucked international trade and caused two world wars. Yeah. As I said in our uh, economic episodes... The the Mm -hmm. two wars were, in large, caused by economics. Don't believe me. Again, listen to... Here's a quote from the US Secretary of State, Cordell Hull. He said, Unhampered trade dovetailed with peace. High tariffs, trade barriers, and unfair economic competition... With war. If we could get a freer flow of trade, freer in the sense of fewer discriminations and obstructions, so that one country would not be deadly jealous of another, and the living standards of all countries might rise, thereby eliminating the economic dissatisfaction that breeds war, and we might have a reasonable chance of lasting peace. That was part of the justification for the Bretton Woods Conference.
0: Yeah, and just to add on to that, yeah, so when Hitler's trying to bring the Nazi Nazi party to power, he's uh, having a hard time when unemployment was really well, and suddenly the... Uh, economic uh, crisis comes along in 1929 and his numbers the followers start to swell because he promises them he has the answers so when you when you say to me when you when you say uh... that economics helped cause the the two world wars yeah, it creates the conditions where the people get so desperate they elect a madman uh... to lead them because they think he's got the answers because they're just so desperate at this point so yeah if you have better trade if you have uh... Co- economies that are doing well or they're interacting and they're generally fair to each other Things are going well and stuff like that can't happen, which is why all this stuff is so important to get it right and to get that right balance and mix of economic policies.
1: That's right. Like uh, what's happening in the U.S. at the moment. People are feeling hard done by and they look to a man.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Pretty much.
1: So... The main idea behind the Bretton Woods Conference, apart from, as you said, building these institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, uh, which were these global financial institutions that would help control international trade and reconstruction after the war, the, mm-hmm. the, the main idea was the notion of open markets. Now, people mm-hmm. may remember that a few episodes ago, I did this whole thing on the open door policy. Uh, I've been reading more about that recently in George Kennan's book, American Diplomacy, which I'll talk more about as as we go over various episodes. But it was this very old idea that the Americans kind of picked up in the early 20th century with respect to China. No one, according to Kennan, and Kennan—if you don't know who George Kennan was—he's the arch, one of the architects of the Cold War. He was an American diplomat who came up with the with the containment idea of containing the Soviets that became the mm-hmm. basis of America's policy towards the Soviets uh, after World War II. Um, he talks a lot in his book *American Diplomacy* about America's history with open door. Policy And basically says it was bullshit and no one ever believed in it. It was just used to look good, smell good. No one ever believed in it. But the idea was open markets that every country should be able to trade openly in any other region, get rid of barriers, get rid of tariffs, uh, make it open. But as he says in the book, everyone paid lip service to it. But what everyone was trying to do is to get beneficial uh, trading access to these countries everyone would pay lip service but then behind the scenes would be trying to manipulate as much as possible
0: they're out for themselves yeah. but, exactly. it,
1: but it sounded good particularly in America to it still Americans. does
0: it's, yeah. it still does we think it's a great idea Yeah.
1: free trade Um, but the big thing that's going to happen out of Bretton Woods is every country is now going to peg their currency not to gold but to the mm-hmm. US dollar Ah, This is where the US dollar Becomes the international Standard, the greenback What would happen is All of these countries would peg Their currency to the US dollar By that I mean they would have A published exchange Rate between Mm -hmm. What everyone, I imagine Understands how exchange rates work uh, Of their currency to the US dollar And then the US dollar would be Pegged to gold, so If you wanted to redeem a British pound into gold, you'd first have to convert it to U.S. dollars at a standard exchange rate, then convert the U.S. dollars into gold.
0: And, and of course, some of that's going to stick to whatever American hand is out or a part of the process. I'm wondering whose idea was this at the Bretton Woods conference? Oh, well,
1: probably an American's. (laughs)
0: Probably someone who understood finance. Okay, yeah, so they pretty much say, okay, this is what we're going to do from now on. And yeah, when they control 22 of the $28 billion worth of gold, they and they're, they're the ones who are footing the bill for uh, the war, at least on the Allies side, yeah, they can pretty much dictate how it is going to be. What is everybody else going to do? Say, no, they can't. They need yeah. America at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And l- l- let it be
1: said that... American uh, elites, political elites from FDR on down through his administration absolutely understood what they were doing. They saw this mm-hmm. the end of World War II as the moment for the US to become politically dominant around the world. Uh yeah. this in place in
0: Britain absolutely. When
1: everyone else is weak and they were strong, of course, they're going to they're going to strike And they did it in a way that has ramifications right down to today. Uh, Now, the the president of the conference, the Bretton Woods Conference, was the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau. Mm
0: -hmm. He
1: stated during his closing remarks of the conference that the establishment of the IMF and the IBRD marked the end of economic nationalism. See, part of the agreement was in order for you to take part in this uh, new international economic um, way of working that they were setting up, you had to agree, your country had to agree to end your trading block and your economic spheres of influence that we've talked about before. Countries had to lower barriers to trade and the movement of Mm -hmm. capital if they wanted to be part of the new system. Now, as as we
0: know... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go. I was just going to say, like you said last on the last episode, one of the people who were who was a big fan of spheres of influence that everybody's trying to get away, get away from is Stalin, because he understands that's how the world up until this point works. And now it's no longer June 1941 when he's getting the shit kicked out of him by the Germans. It's 44. He's recovered, yes, along with some Americans uh, with the Allies' help and supplies or whatever. But Stalin is in a much stronger position, and so he is not going to be excited about any of this. And he now has the military, if not the economic might, to back up how he would like things to go. So so they're going to do this, don't get me wrong, but Stalin is in a much different position now and he's not a big fan of this.
1: Well, the Soviets were there, they were part of Bretton Woods uh, but they decided mm-hmm. not to join the new system mostly thank you, because... No thank you, Yeah, thank you. Yeah, they knew rightly that becoming part of this would mean they'd have to abandon communism and come under the US mm. capitalist system and they didn't want to be part of that, so they said, no thanks. Um... so yeah but most of the rest of the world did get behind it just not the soviets um the soviets thought they'd probably be able to do it themselves they'd take their own journey of uh running their own economic sphere of influence i guess and let's be honest this is what the u.s was setting up this was this really was a sphere of influence it was the u.s sphere of influence. Of With, the whole world, of almost the, the whole world. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were
0: trying. Well, and here's here's the thing, and you and I say this a lot, but it's worth saying. We're not judging the United States. We're not saying this is good. We're not saying this is bad. We're saying the Americans are doing at this point in time in history what anybody else would do. They're taking advantage of a situation. They're trying to guarantee their peace, their prosperity. They're being just nothing more than human at this point, and that's just the way it is. But again, like you were, like you were I think you might have said this or you were about to say it before I cut you. This is a monumental moment in world economic history because the United States and the dollar is replacing the British pound that had been dominant for hundreds of years because, like you said, because of their navy, because of their world empire. America is pushing them aside. Germany is being defeated, but the British are also, in their own way, are being pushed back, and they are no longer center stage. It's now the United States, and to a different degree and a different way, so is Russia because they're going to be this Amazing military power that comes out of World War II. So the two giants are still going to be standing, and Britain is going to be pushed off to the side.
1: Yeah. And the Brits kind of knew this was happening and they fought it as much as they could. They hated it. We know mm-hmm. Churchill was depressed over the fact that yeah. he was sort of the man well, he was in an charge. Empire man. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He was all and, about the empire and he knew he was losing it.
1: Yeah. And uh, it was being deconstructed at, you know, mm-hmm. by force. Uh, right. The Americans were for his allies, the Americans were forcing him to deconstruct the British Empire. Uh, and yeah. that was um, for, for an empire man like Churchill, yeah. massively uh, upsetting and depressing for him to know that he would go down in history. Yeah. As the man that led to the deconstruct that agreed to the deconstruction of the British Empire. Yeah. Uh, no wonder he was drunk. He stayed drunk most of the time. <laughs> the two guys who were the leading uh, geniuses behind Bretton Woods were the eminent British economist John Maynard Keynes, who we've mentioned before, the sort of founder of Keynesianism. And mm-hmm. uh, senior official at the U.S. Treasury, also brilliant in his own right, Harry Dexter White. Mm. Now they had very, they they had independently before Bretton Woods been coming up with their own ideas for an international economic system, and they didn't really agree, have the same uh, the same ideas, the same vision. But they come together, they and they they hash it out over right. the course of this conference. And as it turns out, as you indicated before. Uh, white's uh, ideas uh, end up winning just because the americans have the money and they can get their own way Um, but white says the absence of a high degree of economic collaboration among the leading nations will inevitably result in economic warfare that will be but the prelude and instigator of military warfare on an even vaster scale So it it was well understood by even economists that economic warfare led to military warfare. Now, Keynes wanted to do away with the gold standard so the government could just print money. But (laughs) uh, he he knew that if they remained tied to the gold standard, they would be uh, subservient to America because America had all the gold. If you don't (laughs) have any gold, you don't want to be on the gold standard, basically. Right. Um, but his plans, as I said, were dismissed by White, and the Americans won because they had the money.
0: Yeah, again, just the the British Empire, the kingdom, the whatever you want to call it, is is being dismantled, gold brick by gold brick, and it's coming over. And <laughs> there. there's nothing they can do about it. And that's that's the way the world. When you have the you know strike while the iron's hot, and that's all the Americans are doing. Anybody else would do the same.
1: So by accepting the Americans' plans, London. Transfers the mantle of hegemonic economic control over to the United States. And as I said, they didn't have much choice in the matter. U.S. State Department Undersecretary Sumner Wells said, The United Kingdom has placed the final stone upon the grave of liberal trade policies, which were designed to force every component part of the British Empire, covering a quarter of the globe, to trade Mm. solely within that area. Yeah. now of course the Americans were big believers in uh, in keeping the gold standard absolutely absolutely have to keep the gold standard
0: it's all Uh, about the gold baby
1: until 1971 (laughs) when Richard Nixon abandoned the gold standard and ever since then the US has been printing fiat currency and using various economic controls like quantitative easing to try and handle inflation so So in 1943, they're like, get off the gold standard. Are you fucking
0: insane? What? Look in that room. Look at all that gold. Keynes,
1: you are just fucking loony. How dare you suggest that you should get off the gold standard just because you don't have any gold? Right.
0: That's Look at this ridiculous. bell buckle. Look at just, this, this bell is made out of gold. Fuck there you. There
1: are rules. Just because you're suffering economically doesn't mean you just get to print money. <laughs> and in classic American style, it, it's... it's yeah. and, well, but that's, that's the rules as they apply to you, to the you. rest of the world, <laughs> when we are in the middle to of another you. economic depression. To me, Fuck the right. gold standard. We'll just print money, <laughs> and like they've been now. printing it ever since. For, for right now, it's all about the... Henry Henry Morgenthau, by the way, uh, I mentioned who was the president of the conference. He was the secretary mm. of the treasury. Uh, interesting guy. He was one of the major architects of the New Deal. He's also mm. the architect of the Morgenthau plan, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with and we will talk about later in the series, um, which was the plan to destroy Germany's ability to have any heavy industry after World War II.
0: Yeah. He was also
1: married to the granddaughter of Maya Lehman, a co-founder Lehman. of Lehman Brothers, Ooh, uh, which name. the fourth largest investment bank in the United States before declaring bankruptcy in 2008 <clears throat> during the global financial crisis.
0: Actually, um, I think that's the global financial clusterfuck. I call it the GFCF. The GFCF. Very good. I like that. Thank you.
1: Anyway, so I hope... That little bit of background on the history of money and the gold standard uh, and the, the economic transfer of hegemony will help mm-hmm. people understand how America became the world's economic power.
0: And God wanted us to. That's right. Uh,
1: manifest destiny. Um, moving on, just to, to quickly uh, wrap up. Uh, in October 1944, mm-hmm. Churchill again goes to visit Stalin in Moscow. This is known as the Tolstoy Conference, the fourth yeah. Moscow Conference.
0: Yeah, you got uh, you got Stalin, you got Molotov, the drinker. You got Churchill, mm-hmm. the British Foreign uh, Secretary Anthony Eden, uh, the United States. Uh, um, chief, I think Chief of General Staff, Field Marshal Sir Alan Brooke, and the United States Ambassador Avril Harriman, and his military representative John Ardeen, head of the United States military mission to Moscow. So FDR is not there, but you've got a lot of the heavy hitters. But again, it is in Moscow, and Stalin's going to be, you know, the um, I guess the MC or whatever you want to call it, the host, and he's going to call the shots.
1: Now, the relationship between the USSR and the rest of the Allies had suffered another blow. We mentioned last time people weren't happy when they dug up the graves of the Polish generals from the Katyn massacre. Suffered another blow uh, uh, before this conference as well, when the Soviets had sat by and watched as the Polish resistance rose up against their Nazi occupiers because they mm-hmm. thought the red army was about to enter Poland in August 1944. What had happened is the red army was making its way uh, towards Poland and right. the Polish resistance thought well if the red army get here and defeat the nazis then they will take control they will they, they will have basically the the imprimatur to take control of Poland because they right. rescue it. they wanted freedom yeah. exactly. So exactly. we will yeah. rise up defeat the nazis then the red army will come in behind us and support us right. but we'll be able to say well we took the initiative and so we should have be, have independence of course right. the red army sees them doing this gets to the border of poland and just decides right to on
0: the sit
1: down and wait <laughs> uh and the, and the polish resistance is wiped out by the yeah, nazis was,
0: yeah the Stalin literally told them to stop, and they sat there. I can't remember if it was weeks or months, but they sat there for quite some time. Oh, and months. This, all this yeah. happened. Months, yeah. And the and the other ago. part I didn't mention also at the conference was the, not only was the London-based Polish government, it, that was an exile was there, but the provisional Polish, Polish communist government based in Lub- Lublin was there too. So there's going to be a lot of tension. But, yeah, Stalin, again... I mean, what is he going to get out of this? So he literally stops. The Polish resistance is wiped out. But some Germans are killed because they did fight back, which is, of course, what Stalin wants. And only then is he going to move forward. So he knew exactly what he was doing, yeah. and he didn't give a shit about anybody else. It's like, they're not
1: rising up to help me, so why should I be bothered? Yeah.
0: yeah. right. What do I get out of it? Nothing.
1: Now, the fourth Moscow conference is where Churchill came up with the infamous percentages agreement. Yeah. This is absolute classic Churchill. He and Stalin sat down and figured out how to divide up various <laughs> European
0: countries into spheres of influence. Which which yeah, FBR didn't want, Stalin wanted. And at this particular meeting, uh, Avril Harriman, the American, was not invited. Yeah, and you know the whole thing about the
1: Atlantic Charter and the, the Bretton mm-hmm. Woods Conference is no more spheres out of influence. Out the window,
0: baby out the window
1: and Churchill's like sure sure no more spheres of influence but but it doesn't apply to us right like everyone no, else so, right here. Us. Yeah. so he and stalin sit down on literally on a piece of paper which still exists and they mm-hmm. they basically sketch out a table uh churchill design he, he draws it up in his own handwriting Uh, By his own account in his memoirs, he suggested that the Soviet Union should have 90% influence in Romania and 75% in Bulgaria. Because they were there. The United Kingdom should have 90% of Greece, and -hmm. then they should have 50% each of Hungary and Yugoslavia. Pipe dream. Churchill writes it down on a piece of paper, pushes it across to Stalin, who ticks it and passes it back. (laughs) Churchill, Churchill called it a naughty document. Right, Churchill in his memoirs, says after this there was a long silence the penciled paper lay in the centre of the table at length I said might it not be thought rather cynical if it seemed we had disposed of these issues so faithful to millions of people in such an offhand manner let us burn the paper no you keep it said Stalin <laughs>
0: Now, now I was able to read. Yeah, go ahead. No, you. Yeah. I, w- I just read somewhere that um, when Stalin checks it, Churchill interprets that, and why wouldn't he? As a yes, I agree to everything you written you you wrote down. But he didn't say I agree to everything. He just checked it, and so later on when he is going to do his own thing it's like that's just a check on a piece of paper that's not my signature that's not me agreeing bit by bit item by item it's just a check so stalin was placating churchill knowing all the time that he was not going to give up any land that his troops were able to capture but Churchill's going to find
1: this out later well yes but to be fair neither of them kept their promises all along the way that's true. so everything went that's true. to hell in a handbasket after <laughs> a
0: stand, man but it was a nice gesture
1: yeah Now, Churchill later wrote to the UK Parliament, The system of percentages is not intended to prescribe the numbers sitting on commissions for the different Balkan countries, but rather to express the interest and sentiment with which the British and Soviet governments approach the problems of these countries, and so that they Uh might reveal their minds to each other in some way that could be comprehended. It is not intended to be more than a guide, and of course in no way commits the United States, nor does it attempt to set up a rigid system of spheres of interest. It may, however, help the United States to see how their two principal allies feel about these regions when the picture is presented as a whole. Because FDR wow. was apparently very pissy when, this, right. <laughs> when news gets out about this. Very unhappy.
0: That that's Churchill shining up a pile of shit until it shines, that's right. but it's still shit. It's still now,
1: shit. I want to. I, I want to quickly explain the importance of Greece to the British. Mm-hmm. um Now, it, it, it's. It, I think we. we um, <laughs> It's interesting to note that in that note to Parliament I just read, he mentioned that his desire was to present a civil war in Greece between opposing factions. Now, this is what people need to understand about British interest in Greece. Churchill wanted to reinstall the king. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember the whole Atlantic Charter and self-determination what? for the people no. and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. yeah well again they, people can decide for themselves yeah unless
1: we don't want them to in which case
0: <laughs> they, it goes against they what get I what I want. they
1: get exactly um, you can't always get what you want as the Rolling Stones <laughs> wrote um, that's right Churchill actually advised the king of Greece this is to shoot anybody who tried to foment a civil war
0: wow hmm
1: Now, a little bit of modern Greek history for people who don't know about what had been going on before this period. The king of Greece at the time, George II, had been Mm -hmm. deposed back in 1924, 20 years ago, when the Greeks declared themselves a republic, and then he spent the next 12 years in London, in exile. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: He returned in late 1935 when a plebiscite was held by General Kondylis, who was a monarchist, and he overthrew right. the Republic government in a coup. Uh, he holds mm. a plebiscite at the point of a gun, which restores the monarchy. <laughs> uh, it, voting was compulsory and not anonymous. A bit like, bit like in Australia, but uh, it was being run by a military uh, autocrat. Right. Time magazine described it at the time. As one as a voter, one could drop into the ballot box a blue vote for George II and please General George Condilis, or one mm-hmm. could cast a red ballot for the Republic and get roughed up. Ooh.
0: No, thank you. Mm. Where, but things didn't where's go the...
1: too smoothly for the return of the king, and
0: there were a number
1: of right. political assassinations, including General Condilis. Oh, snap. Another... Uh, sort of veteran army officer, a guy called Ionarsis Metaxas rose mm-hmm. to power. He later became, I think, um, one of the uh, robots in disguise. Metaxas sounds like a Transformers name. <laughs> I am Metaxas. Um, on the 4th of August 1936, uh, King George endorses Metaxas's establishment of a dictatorship Mm -hmm. This is called the 4th of August regime. Uh, They sign decrees dissolving the parliament, banning political parties, uh, abolishing the constitution, and saying they're going to create a third Hellenic civilization. Oh, good for them. Yeah. Um, Now, the king and the dictator or prime minister, Metaxas, basically oversaw a right-wing regime in which political opponents were arrested. There was strict censorship. This is the king that Churchill wants to reinstate because it's all about Mm -hmm. (laughs) self-determination of the fucking people. During the dictatorship, the 4th of August regime, uh, there were banned books that included Plato, Xenophon, a lot of the great philosophers. They didn't want people reading that shit. (laughs) <laughs> um, but then World War II comes along. Greece is first invaded yeah. by Italy, then by they Germany. Kick their ass. Yeah, right. Then the Germans kick their ass. Yeah. George has to go into exile again, into London, and the Greek yeah. resistance is made up of leftist groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greece is liberated. A communist government is elected, and this is when Churchill said he wants to reinstate the king.
0: Good for him. And just to let everybody know, by the time Germany invaded Greece and helped the Italians, Metaxas uh, Metaxas was on his deathbed. He had a, a cancer or some kind of serious ail- ailment. He wanted Britain's help, but not to the point it would piss off Germany. It obviously didn't happen that anyway. But so he he did what he could for the people against the Italians. But but by then he's too weak to do anything, and so he he's going to die soon after.
1: All right, let's wrap it up. We've got to be out in five minutes. Right. So, uh, Britain wanted Greece because it was very important to their Mediterranean trade routes, right? They wanted to control it. Mm-hmm. And Stalin was like, even though the communists were controlled, Stalin was like, yeah, Greece, you know, it's I don't give a shit about Greece. You take Greece. You have Greece. Good luck right.
0: to you. Yeah, right. He did not care.
1: Now, yeah. towards the end of the Tolstoy conference, uh, they talked about uh, controlling Poland. Uh, as you said, there were the exiles of the Polish government in London and the communist forces in Poland. Uh, they yeah. attend the meeting in uh, in Moscow. The objective is mm-hmm. to figure out how to unify the two sides. But there's this sticking right. point, the Kurzon line, as I think yeah. we've mentioned before. The communists, the mm-hmm. Lublin Poles, as they know, and insisted that the Kurzon line be called a border. The exiles in London only wanted to refer to it as a line of demarcation. And believe it or not, this leads to a stalemate. Um, according to Churchill's memoirs, though, he says he leaves the conference feeling that his relationship with Stalin was positive. He writes, There is no doubt that in our narrow circle we talked with an ease, freedom, and cordiality never before attained between our two countries. Stalin made several expressions of personal regard which I feel sure were sincere, but I became even more convinced that he was by no means alone. As I said, to my colleagues at home, behind the horseman sits black care. Nice.
0: Poetic. Now,
1: this is Churchill. Well, this is Churchill showing off his knowledge of the classics. It's a quotation from the Roman poet Horace. Post mm-hmm. equitum sedet atracura. Uh, it means the horse, behind the horseman sits black anxiety. So he's basically saying mm. Churchill is worried about the future of his country and. Probably his right. own personal future. Um, Horace, yeah. as our Augustus listeners might remember, was a soldier during the Civil War after Julius Caesar's assassination, who said "fuck this shit" and became a poet instead.
0: <laughs> I'm out of here.
1: During this uh, Tolstoy conference, <laughs> Churchill also convinced uh, was convinced sorry that Stalin would get engaged in the fight against Japan as soon as yeah. the Germans were defeated. And uh, this is something, as we mentioned during the Tehran conference, the US are very interested in seeing happening. And we'll talk about that more when we get to Yalta.
0: Nice. So yeah, it goes down. But And again, this is the second time Churchill's had a meeting with Stalin. He feels like almost like on a personal level they're bonding. But if you look at what's accomplished, he is not getting what he wants. So FDR is pushing him economically and as far as military might. And then on the other side, Stalin is taking, making it clear he is going to keep a lot of what he takes. So again, Churchill and the fading power that is Great Britain is just being pushed around by the two giants, and he's just doing the best he can. He's putting the best spin on it, but he's having a good personal relationship with Stalin. Good for him.
1: Okay, let me read out some new heroes. DEFCON 1, Stinus von Beckmann, Craig Burkett, Vadim Kirilov, Mark Farr, Jones, about fucking time, Mark. Anthony Cutting, <laughs> David Gales, Nadezhwar Kekma, Jeremy Bigness, which is a great name. I wish I was the Bigness. Andrew McBath, Gavin Vanderwater, Caleb Peterson, Edmund Modesthead, Ashley Thomas, John Cork, Ben Manuel, Christopher Black, David Parks, Kevin Richardson, Simon Pillatt, Bill Stevens, Anthony Darr, Chris Newmeyer, Steve Wittmer, Timothy LeLon, Tyrone Cleary, David Jalali, Iman Morat, Alex Hartnett, Jordan Chenokene, Clemens Ackerblom, Efrat, Sharon, and Daniel Ervand... Thank you, all of our new DEF CON yes, 1 supporters. at new DEF CON 2s are Casey Pierce, Ken Baby, and Martin Darlington. About fucking time, MD. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and DEF CON 3, Carl Linkenbarg. In fact, didn't I read these mm. last time? I think I read all these last time.
0: Who knows? You know what? They mean so much to us. I'm glad you read them again. And letting everybody know, I found a really great map of the Curzon online discrepancy. So I'll be putting that on the Facebook uh, so you can get an idea of what's going on. All right.
1: Uh, let me read a review I don't think I've read before. This is from Tabakman76 uh, in the United States. Love these guys, especially Cam. Of course. I was born in Mm -hmm. Moscow in 1976 and immigrated to the US in 1979 and never heard the entire backstory of the Cold War. All the stories from my relatives are pretty scary and make me thank God I live in the good old US of A. This podcast is very informative and these guys are also extremely funny. I must listen for anyone who wants to hear the truth from all sides and not just our side. Can't wait to see what's next. I also listen to every episode of the Life of Caesar podcast. Keep up the great work. And please, Ray, you have to step it up a notch. Cam is making you look like a sidekick.
0: I don't have to. I mean, I could. And I should. I don't have to. Good point. You don't have to. You just let people continue to make fun of you, Ray. You know what? I'm secure enough. And I got limoncello. I'm good. Trust me, people. And you get okay. You get the money anyway. So what do you care? Yeah. You don't have to work. Raise okay. I pay you. Exactly. Uh, it's kind of like being married to me.
1: Thank you to Bachman. Send us an email. Email at a yes. com with your address, and we will send you a thank mm-hmm. you gift. Leave us Absolutely. a review, and uh, you might win one too. That's it. We got to go. I'm outies. Uh, thank you, Ray. Thank you, everybody. Thank we'll you. be back. This is the theme music.
0: curtain has descended across the continent of the soviet military buildup on the island of cuba the purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the western hemisphere